I talk about in the book, like how I wrote for a year in a money journal. So I just wrote all my feelings about money. What was my first experience with money? Actually, I liked money when I was a kid. I was eight years old and said, I told my mom that I wanted to uh, learn how to golf because that's where business deals are being made. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. This is episode 18, and I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I am joined by the one and only Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I am doing great. How are you doing, Brent? I'm, I'm doing well. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm making it. We're all surviving together yeah. inside, mostly inside, because viruses and also insufferable heat are keeping us there. That's like a blow dryer outside right now. It's, it's gross. Yeah. Unless you're in a pool. That's the only way that you're going to survive outside right now. Uh, I'm with you. Yeah. Are you guys getting much pool time? We do. We get pool time every day. Luckily, we have a pool at our house, and my husband takes care of all the pool stuff, so I don't have to worry about that. It's just beautiful and blue every time I go out. Uh, but yeah, we go out every single day, and that's how our dogs get their exercise now because it's too hot. Like you have to, you know, walk them either at like sunrise at 5 a.m. or at nighttime, which we've talked about critters before on this podcast. That's not yep. happening. Yep. So unfortunately, our pups don't get their walk, but they get swim time every single evening. So we get uh, a lot of pool time, which is pretty nice. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> I, I would say the being stuck inside has affected our children differently depending on their ages. So there's like 14. She's sort of suffering in silence. Um, 10 and 8 they're so, they'll let you know but they're they're much more able to just like get glued into watching videos or watching <laughs> shows on their iPads and stuff. Five years old, it ain't going down too well right now. I mean, she is really <laughs> struggling. She's doing she's doing what five-year-olds do and just like having all these breakdowns for no real reason just because, you know, you know, she'll just be in tears over something you're like, "What's the matter?" Uh, my carrot is too big. You're like, well, Aww. look, I, I got nothing for that. I got nothing. It's like <laughs> kryptonite to parenting. It's horrendous. <laughs> so we're, we're dealing with the typical uh, five-year-old stuff. But other than that, when she's not that doing that, she's also the cutest kid in the family. So she's got both things going for her. <laughs> you're like, oh, thank goodness you're combo. cute. Yeah. yeah, it's a very dangerous combo, let me tell you. <laughs> Well, today we are talking about financial wellness, and I didn't think there was anybody better to talk to about that than Eugene George. Uh, Eugene is a financial wellness guru. She is an author. She is a podcaster. She is a blogger. She is a teacher. Uh, she has a book coming out, and which I'm sure she's going to tell us all about, so I won't uh, spoil it for us. And uh, she also has a podcast called The Money and Flow Podcast, which everybody ought to check out. Uh, and so with that, Eugene, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, did I did I do your bio justice, or do you need to correct the record in any way? Uh, no, I would not call myself a guru, <laughs> uh, but um, I think I'm on to something in terms of like you know some of the the insights. But no, I, I am forever, I guess, an educator 
And so that's kind of how I stumbled even into financial wellness um, was because I was a teacher. And then I just started teaching and financial wellness courses. It was kind of like a weird thing over time. So um, yeah, still writing curriculum, still, still writing the thing that I was doing before, uh, except now I'm just doing it for myself. And then we have two, there's a, we have a 14-year-old and a, and a seven-year-old. So uh, now I'm like teaching financial wellness now to them, which is really weird uh, because we're like talking about commercials, you know, like yeah. my, the sev- our seven-year-old is like, I, you know, we got to get a sofa from Bob's Furniture. I'm like, <laughs> what? You know, like, what are you talking about? But um, <laughs> why? Because I saw this commercial and they're telling me I need to buy it. So now we're having these weird uh, combos. But I do appreciate y'all for inviting me here. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. And well, tell us a little bit about the book uh, so that everybody is well informed on that on that front. Yeah. Um, so I basically uh, am a lover of all things personal finance. And so uh, I've read a lot of books for with personal finance, and I also like behavioral economics. In um, undergrad, I studied public policy. So a lot of that is talking about supply and demand, how do people uh, interact with policies, um, you know, how would you use uh, policy to create constructive change. So there's always been kind of a background of that. Um, but, you know, whenever you look at all table of contents for personal finance, the thing that's missing is like the the race, the class, yeah. where you live, like uh, your environment, all of that's missing. You typically hear a story of, you know, I got out of debt. This is what I did. Um, or like, you're bad at spending and this is how you need to change it. Um, or, I mean, even though I love the four hour work week, um, the uh, here's how to hack your money. So you kind of have those same three conversations over and over again. And the, I was, I kept saying there's something that's missing. So I really wanted to know what keeps people up at night. Um, like what's the thing that's constantly bothering them. So then I interviewed 40 women uh, and, and kind of ask them, Hey, why don't you tell me your money story and let's see if the way women are feeling about their money adds up to some of the policies that were in place for, uh, to disbar women of color, uh, to achieve financial success. So that's, that's the big thing. It's a pretty big ask, um, (laughs) you know, to talk about the story. I talk about my, like, you know, um, story of how I had to, to learn how to, heal myself. And then, you know, we can't just leave with, with just, okay, here's the problem. Here's some trauma. So the next piece was, okay, let's actually create a financial wellness plan. We're going to create this, this idea together because the term financial wellness means financial stability. And like, what does that mean? Right. And so, you know, you kind of look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like all different types of stuff and, and try to figure out, okay, well, what do people actually need? And what's holding them back. Um, so then we, we created that. And then the next, the last piece within the book is, well, how do you find a financial BFF? So now you have this confidence. Now you've gotten through some of your trauma. Now you know about your money story. Now you're in the habit of looking at your money personally. Who do you need to talk to next? What's the difference between a CPA, a CFA, a financial coach? A financial counselor. Do you need debtors anonymous? Like I literally broke it down to <laughs> here are the licensed ones, here are the unlicensed ones, 
here are the certified ones and here are like here are the the good things about them and the here are the things you should be aware of um so just trying to give people the actual tools so that when they go to whoever they go to they have the confidence to, to have a conversation yeah that's so good that's so good uh, and i I think um, everybody has some sort of emotional attachment or emotional relationship with money and figuring out what that is and what it looks like for you and kind of like what are your emotional triggers with money is is pretty critical. Like you can do all the planning you want, but if you haven't figured that part out, like the plan is doomed to fail. And I love the fact that you right. that you give people the insight about all the different advisors and the credentialing and who is who, because I think people have a hard time understanding the financial planning and advisory industry anyways, because there's so many different players. And it's, even though it is regulated, like the barriers to entry to be a quote unquote advisor are very low. And so it's this very uh, broad category of people. Yeah. And I think that's, I, I agree with you. I think what most people know about is one, they might know like uh, what a bookkeeper is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing that I really wanted folks to understand is um, there's like two really big industries that are popping up. One is a money coach, right? Which is you actually don't need any uh, certifications or anything. A lot of money coaches are for your mindset and, you know, to feel good, but that's something to be aware of. Um, and then a lot of folks get all their advice. I mean, I feel like most folks know this here in this podcast, but through financial education or financial educators, which is good, but I don't want you to take that as face value. So that's kind of like the the big piece because I have failed miserably listening to certain folks about like hurrying and paying down your debt or, or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So that, that was kind of a, an eye opening thing. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I think you bring a really great perspective, Eugene. And so what I'm thinking that we could talk about, if this sounds okay with you, um, you mentioned the financial wellness plan. So kind of, you know, what that is, you know, you mentioned stability, looking at the needs of the person and, you know, taking that kind of holistic approach that really just makes sense. <laughs> so kind of let's talk about that. Um, and then, you know, looking at it holistically, how does someone's background really play into that and with financial wellness planning? So, you know, their, their culture, their family, you talked about your experiences, what you've been through. So how does all of that shape the plan you know, and guide you in the next couple steps? And then I would personally just love to talk to you too about just financial wellness planning for women of color. Um, I'm a Japanese American, so I I definitely understand like yours, you know, it's, it's a very um, male dominated field and, uh, and it's, I would love to see your perspective on that and kind of do, do things change and, you know, and, and, and considering the background and our cultures, things like that. So does that sound okay with you to kind of Yeah, talk yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to. So, um, well, first we'll talk about the financial wellness and then I'll talk about the, the key insights of, of what I've learned after listening to a lot of women. Um, so the term financial wellness just means the ability to be uh, stable, financially stable. But as we know, you know, that 70% of folks live paycheck to paycheck. We don't really have, we don't have a real definition, 
of what stability is or any of that. So that was kind of the thing that I was focusing on. And particularly with, um, you know, the CFP or the financial planning life cycle, most folks are still kind of in this accumulation uh, phase where they're constantly like building and understanding, okay, what do I need to save for retirement? Um, so what I did was I actually looked at the wellness pillars, right? There's eight wellness pillars. And what I did was I said, okay, well, how do each of these pillars affect the stories that I'm telling myself about money? So for instance, um, your physical pillar, I talk about sleep. And so I say, you know, a lot of folks, especially um, including myself right now, I like cannot wait till I crash in two weeks because we're moving to. And so I'm like, okay, <laughs> July, you know, 4th, it's going to be done, you know, but <laughs> just, there's, there is that like, okay, there, I'm not sleeping as much, but that overall affects your productivity. Um, that overall affects your ability to, to uh, learn or even to pay attention. Uh, the lack of sleep. I remember when I used to be a teacher, we used to take pictures of kids just falling asleep. And that, that, I mean, if a kid's falling asleep, one, that also mean, might mean that my lesson was whack, but two, it also might mean that, um, <laughs> that they're not getting enough sleep at home either. So that, that's something that uh, affects you. But the long term, we know that if Americans folks are not sleeping well enough, that's going to affect the overall economic GDP. So they've done studies on how sleep is now uh, a national uh, public health issue because we're not sleeping as much, right? And I live in Philadelphia, which is right now ranked one of the places that people have less sleep at. So already you can tie all of that to money because it's like if you're not sleeping well, you're you're not pro you're not as productive. Although it appears that you're, um, uh, especially in Philly, you're hustling, right? Um, so that's what I did. I basically took these pillars and I said, well, what does it mean to be, um, financially stable? And like, how can we, um, make an actual holistic plan? Cause we don't talk about the holistic plan. So, um, with the, when we're going and thinking about women of color, there is the aspect of culture and how that affects your money story and overall, how does that affect your financial wellness? And so, um, for the research, I specifically talked to Latinx women, indigenous women, African-American women, Asian-American women. And I specifically said, you know, this is based off of uh, studies from America, right? Um, and so it's been, it's been really crazy, but basically I was able to find people's uh, spending habits and their trauma or uh, their inability to have the vocabulary uh, for financial wellness or even to ask for for financial wellness based off of the laws in, in uh, the policies that were in place. So a great example is there's this uh, woman that I, I call her Sydney in the story because, you know, I made their their names anonymous. Mm -hmm. um, and Sydney, what is a great saver, right? She's always talking about how she saves. Uh, she talks about how she's like half Japanese and her Japanese side, like really honed in on the saving part, um, which is hilarious because that's, that's like, that was most of the conversations that I had with a lot of Asian American women was like, I'm really good at saving. I'm really good at this. And I said, that's great. Okay. 
well, we're going to sit here until you tell me the truth of what's, what's like, what's really bothering you. Because if I don't, if I don't see what here, what's bothering you, we can't get to the, the problem. And so then, then that's when women started breaking down and saying like, you know, um, my family was our parent, my grandma was in the Japanese internment camp, which meant that they lost all their property or, um, they or I was Chinese American and my family had to pay so many different taxes because they lived in the Bay Area that the, they had like a laundry tax and a sit, you know, uh, all these types of things. Your scarcity mindset or your your idea of scarcity is there. So you're saving your. Yeah, you're saving, but you're terrified to spend money on things that are important, like buying glasses or, you know, um, trying to make sure that you're taking care of yourself. Um, the other, the, the one thing that I did debunk, uh, was the, the model minority myth, which is, uh, they, a lot of folks say that, you know, uh, Asian American women are the best at like schools and they're the smartest and they're geniuses. Um, and then the other thing was like Asian American women are make the highest amount of income, even above white women. And so then I said, all right, let's really, because I grew up around Asian Americans. I celebrated Chinese New Year. My first money advice was from my, you know, my Aunt Faye. So I know, I know <laughs> that that's not true because I've had these conversations and I went to Berkeley and that's not the conversations that folks were having. And I just was like, well, why are we having it? Clearly, I'm not Asian American, so I couldn't fully understand what the real deal was. But the disconnect was if you have this idea of the that you have to be this certain, uh, this type A high achieving, that causes a lot of stress. And that stress is going to translate to your money. We know if we actually look at uh, Asian American women's culture, we are putting 16 ethnicities in one monolith group. So everyone knows like that average inc illusion income. What you're seeing is a lot of um, like Japanese, Indian, uh, Southeast Asians um, that are coming into the States and they are, ha they have a higher income, but that's not, that's not the whole population. So we're like throwing these things out. Like they got it. You know, I love crazy rich Asians. Again, that does not represent everybody. So the thing that I really wanted to tie in with, with that model minority and in that those feelings was there's this idea of saving face and, you know, saving face, particularly with a lot of Asian cultures is, well, um, you have to do things for the family and you don't want to embarrass the family. If you embarrass the family, that's a wrap. Like, you know, you're not going to have and you don't want to embarrass the family, which creates a lot of issues around mental health, lots and lots. And um, I mean, I think that's the interesting thing is I just wanted to debunk a lot of the, the phrases and terms that people were saying because I, I wanted to, to at least make people feel okay with not being okay, it's particularly with money. And, and I think that really affects the overall culture. Um, because, you know, uh, there's a lot of Asian Americans that are on Medicaid and people don't know that because they're saying, oh, you know, they, they all got, they all did Kumon. 
they all did, you know, these tutoring things and they're all going to Harvard. And so I, I just, that just really bothered me because it wasn't true. Um, and then the same goes for a lot of other cultures. I, you know, right now we're seeing a lot of folks being deported and that idea has not new. It started in the early 1900s and we can trace that all the way back here. So when we look at um, Latinx women or indigenous women or Afro-Latina like women, the equal pay day is November. So Latinx women have their equal pay day is the last on on the list, meaning like it takes until November for them to meet up with the, the one dollar that a, a white male makes. Right. And so. I had to like understand what's the thing that they're not doing or what, what aren't they speaking up about? Um, I mean, we're in this really interesting time right now where there's protests and there's lots of things that are going on. Um, and so I had to talk about uh, growing up and feeling inferior based off of my skin color and how feeling inferior will uh, overall affect your mental health because that means you're not going to ask for your pay that means you're not going to um you're not going to speak up and if you do speak up you might get fired so i i tried to make it a, a point where I, when i had these conversations with women i would a lot, a lot of times tell them the problems and then either they would say oh my gosh yes or we had to pull it out of them for them to I needed to see a tear basically so that I can help them understand like it's okay, but we need to have these tears so that one, I can, I can tell a better story, but two, like I really need to know what keeps them up at night so that we can create policies behind these, these problems. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a long winded thing, but I think that's in order for you to understand the stability part you have to know where you are with your mental health and you really have to learn um, uh, where you are with or learn about the policies that have like barred folks. Um, I'm going to talk about one more thing, <laughs> which was like, yeah, the big, go for it. okay, which was like the big aha moment. Um, so when I first was writing uh, the book, <laughs> I just was like, this is terrible, you know, it's, it's this is a white guy problem like i don't know what's going on like i'm just upset and i stumbled upon a, a video that was done by dr nadine harris burke it was a ted talk and she talks about this thing called um adverse childhood experiences and that was the thing that really made me to chuck 100 pages of the book and what adverse childhood experiences is kaiser permanente and the CDC have this um, national study where they create a metric to find out folks' long-term mental health and health outcomes, right? So 31 states have already done it. Um, at least within those 31 states, uh, at least most adults have at least one ACE score, right? So they, they do this metric of what happened to your past, what was traumatic about your past, and like, let's actually look at that problem to to uh, understand your health, right? So for my example, I'm going to be very vulnerable here. Um, I'm very type A, right? I have an anxious attachment style, which means I can be like sensitive. Um, and because I have this, this is because my A score is a two, right? So because I have that A score, 
the thing that's tr always triggering for me is you're not doing enough. You should be working harder. You should be coming up with this new idea. You should be getting this degree. I mean, that's, that's the thing that makes me stress, right? You, ha I have to be this smart to, to, to see, I have to write a book, right? To, to prove to people that I, I am smart, you know? Um, and so that actually will affect your money because whatever is triggering to you, it will come in very weird ways. Um, for starters, for me, cause I had the anxious attachment style, um, and my upbringing, I actually never thought about marriage as an option. I always was like, what? That's not really a thing. Like, that's, that's just not for me. Um, I also just didn't, I just didn't get it. I was like, oh, you're going to be single for the rest of your life. There's going to be no children. None of that. Like, that's just what I thought. Um, and I had to do a lot of unlearning with the help of like a therapist and then a financial planner and all of that stuff. I have a whole squad. Um, with that uh, ACE score, I mean, every, anybody can take it. All you have to do is type it in. It explains so much because regardless of the, your race, uh, your ethnicity, your spirituality, unfortunately, everyone has experienced trauma. Um, and unfortunately, well, I guess fortunately, because we're in this space where we can talk about our trauma openly, um, kind of openly, this is the first opportunity we can talk about it. So um, I, I think that's the thing that folks, doesn't matter what, how much money you have, the ACE score can help you understand why you're doing weird things. Um, and, and I think we're, we're not there yet in, in terms of creating policies for that because we don't have enough data. But that was kind of like the big aha moment. Like, okay, this is what makes this book different than, than most personal finance books. Like what's that, what is your trauma? And we can, we can look at your money story and everything and let's backtrack it to see how it affects your health. Right. And then how it affects your, your wealth. So what steps then when, you know, you, you dive into that and you know, you say you have a, a wellness advisor and, you know, they're looking at this, holistically looking at the pillars like you were talking about. So when you kind of discover like, all right, these are, this is the reason why I'm doing things the way I'm doing them now, then kind of what's next. So then it's like how, you know, like you're saying like sometimes if, if you're just very type A, like that's just who you are as a person, how do you try to change that then to create a financial wellness plan for the future? Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, this is really unorthodox, but I think uh, what one thing one should do is grieve, right? Because <laughs> you're, you're coming to terms, we're talking about ancestry, we're talking about things that are not comfortable, you kind of have to grieve about that, because your family never had the opportunity to, right? Um, you know, there, there used to be an old joke that it's like, you know, we didn't have time to, we didn't have time to think like we had to work, you know, the great depression, you didn't have time. You couldn't write the great Gatsby. You could work, but now you have time and you have the internet and you could actually use it. Although most people are using it to look at cats, videos of cats or, <laughs> or if you, if y'all have kids, uh, we're like watching, um, Justin and Adam and Justin or whatever that those YouTubers are. Oh my gosh. So like being okay with the fact that you just learned something that's pretty traumatic. I think you should sit with being uncomfortable, right? Um, but then once you sit with being uncomfortable, 
I, I, I talk about it in the book, like how I wrote for a year in a money journal. So I just wrote all my feelings about money. What was my first experience with money? Actually, I liked money when I was a kid. I was eight years old and said, I told my mom that I wanted to, uh, learn how to golf because that's where business deals are being made. I have no clue how I came up with that, but that was my, my little eight-year-old process. And, and I always liked uh, those things. And so I, I had to learn about that. Um, and that's kind of what led me into the financial planning profession was backtracking. Um, so simple things like writing in a journal, that, that's important. Um, if you want to start leveling up and having those conversations, the first thing that I did when I like ran out of money was I did uh, Debtors Anonymous and Under Earners Anonymous. So there you have something free. Then I moved up and then I said, okay, well, I want to pay off these student loans. Like what's my next step? So then I got um, a, what is it? Um, I talked to someone who specialized in student loan debt, right? I paid off all the undergraduate loan. So it was just like this, uh, this long ongoing process of, you know, let's just start from the basic, let's cry. I mean, I, it was, I had to get a therapist, right? I, I had to deal with feeling inferior, um, which is, you know, a really ter- terrible thing to feel. Um, and then, yeah, you, you just move up the process, but also understand that it's a process, you know, you don't just get that 401k match and, you know, when you cash it too early, you don't get the money. So you, you have to actually see it as like, this is an investment. This is going to take time. Um, but I do want folks to implement the steps immediately. Um, or implement different parts of uh, habit building for the, their money. Yeah, and all, all of that takes a long time and takes, I mean, it takes time. Like time is the the magic thing that makes it work. I think that's the hardest part probably uh, once you get into the actual planning phase. Yeah, like I, I think, people. yeah, 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 yeah. I think, um, uh, so, you know, a lot of people say, well, how did you come up with this health idea or, you know, how did you? We're able to tie it in. And so in high school, I wrote a paper called Racial Disparity in Healthcare. And I was went to high school that was affluent. And I started writing. I didn't know how, I didn't have the right vocabulary. I think I got a B minus on it because I couldn't, couldn't pull those, those, those items together. Um, and, you know, I had friends that were writing about the benefits of yoga, right? So <laughs> I, you know, so that was what, 15 years ago that I, I had those, those conversations. And it, it takes a while for folks, for me to, for me to even to have that vocabulary that took years of building. And so now I'm able to talk about it. So yes, it's really similar to, to the life cycle of, of planning. Yeah, and I like the idea of of starting by kind of understanding yourself, understanding where where you come from, understanding your insecurities, understanding things that are within and not within your control and how they're affecting you and then trying to gain some control. Obviously, you can never have total control over it, but trying to gain some control over it by having an actual plan of action that you can take. Yeah, that, that was the, uh, the the interesting thing. So, I mean, I think, I mean, particularly if there are folks that are in the finance, you know, space, most folks that I used to talk to, you know, when you talk to them, they, they would say, well, you know, my grandmother was in the Great Depression. And so we had to count all the pennies. So I think we really have to go back to that. Because if you ask a lot of folks in finance, 
a lot of people that went into finance was because they said, I, I can't, I have to succeed better. I have to learn more. I, ha I have to, to, to understand this money piece, right? Because if I understand money, I can figure out the rest of my life, which we know that's not true. But uh, <laughs> a lot of people think that they're like, if I can understand finances, then maybe I'll be a good boyfriend or maybe I'll be a good girlfriend, you know? Uh, which is, uh, those are other life skills, but, um, so it turns out that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, that's the, the, the fun part. So what about, um, then finding advisors who can speak your language and understand where you're coming from? Cause I, as an industry, I don't think that it really matches up as a cross section with the demographics of the country. No, not at all. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's the honest truth, but I think uh, I'm laughing because of being uncomfortable. Um, I just gave a talk to uh, the African-American Knowledge Circle with FBA today, and um, I think what's happening with, with the financial planning side, the personal finance side, is because of this, um, this awareness of uh, disparities, people are telling their trauma fast. So even my first experience that I had being in finance, they made me um, change use my, my middle name, which is Paige, and not Eugene, right? Because that's a complicated name. Um, and, and that was what, not too long, not too long ago. Um, and I will, uh, I, it really made me think about it. But even when I was younger, I did the same thing. I had like my own study where I worked at Gap. And I would switch my name tags and I would say like, okay, today I'm going to be Eugene, today I'm going to be Paige. And let's <laughs> see who actually, how people view me or talk to me. Yeah. Um, Eugene is a French name. It's a Chinese name. It's a Spanish name. It's like all of, it's like the Ethel of like everybody. It's an old name. Um, and so like in French, it's like Eugene and like, you know, it's, it's weird that even my name um, as a whole is, is, was treated differently. So, um, yeah, there, there's a lot of uncomfortableness with, with that. And, and I mean, it's a perfect segue because my, for my MBA capstone, I, I worked on, I asked a bunch of white advisors. I said, Hey, is anybody doing inclusive work and not just not talking about it or actually doing it? And there were some people that showed up and said, actually, I'm doing this. Actually, we, you know, we host, um, Saturday classes for um, undocumented workers. Hey, you know, I do this. I said, well, where on your website do you say this? Where are you telling people? Because if one person hears that you're doing the work and you're a solo firm, then other people will have the guts to say, hey, I don't really know a lot about undocumented workers. But what I do know um, is that if I can help, other people can help. Um, and so then we kind of came up with this thing called uh, diversity business plan, which is included in your overall sales model. There's just some initiative that you do that either it talks about being inclusive. So it could be like, um, you know, we specifically help out folks from, you know, the LGBTQ community. We give free financial services quarterly. Um, and that's a smart measure because I know lots of folks in the advisory needs, they need those metrics. Um, and so you have to say, instead of just saying like, you know, I agree with, with black folks, I agree with, with Latinx folks, you say, well, yeah, I agree, but we're trying to do the thing. And me as a CEO, I'm trying to do it myself too. Not necessarily 
the the person that's a paraplanner, right? That's doing the work. So I I think that's that's the thing that's that's tricky. Um, and I think what we're having right now is a lot of people are upset because they have been in the profession for fifty years, forty years, thirty years. And now they're able to speak their truth. That's that's pretty traumatic. Um, I came from a social justice background, so we were talking about DNI stuff when I was like 24. So when you you know you're having arguments about you know I'm African American, no you're black or I'm this. So I was already used to having uncomfortable conversations. And then also like my partner, he's also um, a principal at as as in the city of Philadelphia. So we, the conversations we have are always uncomfortable because we're always trying to figure out what's the next step. Like, okay, what, what is this? Is this a capitalistic problem? Is this a socialism problem? Like what's going on? Um, so I do have very different conversations. So when I entered the financial planning space, I was like, whoa, we have to start from square one because no one is talking about it. And now that everyone's talking about it, um, it's not up to the folks of color to be the people that are, are um, implementing these actions because that creates a brain drain. And you're not recognizing that that person is basically representing a whole community, most likely in these firms. So that's not fair at all. And in fact, I don't even think that those planners should be leading uh talks they should not be the the liaisons because that is something that if they are the liaison they should get paid for it so i i think it's 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 got to be on the other side this time it's got to be like well we don't understand it you know and people have to be honest and it's got to be a little bit uncomfortable um and i i don't know what that's going to look like I, I mean i've always been like i'm going to be i'm doing social justice and financial planning b2b b2c whatever we're, we're going to do that um but I think it's hard because even me just starting and I wrote an article in Kitsis and whatnot, everyone's telling me their trauma, right? So I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I need a therapist because now I'm hearing all these people's trauma <laughs> and I thought I was okay. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it's, it's uncomfortable for sure. Yeah, but I think I mean I think that's a conversation that has to be had. And I think you're right. I think more, you know, remains to be seen how long lasting the, the microscope lasts here. I think more industries are taking a look at themselves at least and being willing to say, yeah, we have a deficiency. You know, let's look at uh who's filling the upper echelons of the executive ranks in our organization and does do they match up with the ideals that we're espousing publicly. Um, and I know that for, you know, I, we, we both came out of large, a large law firm. I know it in large law firms in, and in the legal industry generally, they're constantly talking about diversity. Everybody wants to kind of one up each other on diversity. But when you look at the very top and the people that are sitting in equity positions in those firms, they haven't met the goals and they've been doing this for 15, 20, 30 years. And so it starts, you know, you start to think, well, maybe they're not as sincere as they say they are, because if they were really sincere, they would figure out what the problem was and actually address the real problem rather than uh, what they tend to do is they recruit younger people to fill lower level ranks and then they call that diversity, even though all the decision making at the top is still being made largely by the same cohort of people who've been making those decisions forever. And, you know, the sort of 
seats of power within those organizations are sort of just being shuffled around the same groups of people. And it's not really diverse when you really yeah. kind of drill down into it. I, I, and I, sorry, and I'm not saying that the legal industry is unique. I just think that I know that firsthand because that's the industry we're in that they struggle with that. They struggle with, um, matching up results with, with aspirations. Mm. And it just kind of feels like maybe we're in a moment where people are going to finally figure out that, okay, we actually do need to match up results with aspirations, but I think it depends on how long that spotlight lasts. Yeah. I mean, I, I would agree a hundred percent, Brent. I think, I think the other thing with that too, is that, um, you had, if you're the person that's the leader or the, the person that's in charge, you have to do inner work yourself too, right? And and I think that's the hardest part is right now what you're seeing is a lot of folks being defensive, right? They're saying, well, I, I we, we put in this diversity thing and it just didn't work. And it's like, yes, um, I understand that. But I mean, if this is our, a community, we should be able to have difficult conversations. And so I gave an example actually today about, um, I used to teach at a school that was a charter school. And um, there were lots of folks that were, we taught black and brown students, but most of the teachers were white. So I think I was probably the only, um, actually that's not true, within the like, 25 staff uh there was three teachers of color there right um and that didn't match the demographic right um if we look at what's that there's that old book the millionaire next door they said that a lot of like entrepreneurs their their kids become uh, teachers right so um you have this like oh you can make it if i teach you this right um, but I, we used to have difficult conversations all the time. And even the, my friends that I had were saying things that were racist and they talked black and brown and was not even aware of what they were saying. Right. And even myself, I, I used to say, I'm really trying to unlearn some things, but I, um, particularly when it comes to gaps, right. Achievement gap. An achievement gap means that there was an opportunity to fill it. Like you could have the actual gap. And so even that term, the wealth gap, that means that there was an equal playing field. There was not. We know that. So why are we we're pretending like, you know, let's close that gap? There's no gap. Right. It, it's just inequality. It's inequity, period. It's, it's inequity. Yeah, exactly. It's a graph <laughs> right. is what it is. You know, it's like right. statistics. Right. And I think it's it's hard, too, because the the thing with that is um when you're even those scenarios where i was giving d and i conversations you know at 24 about how we can't make fun of this girl's name because her name is like sharita or whatever um it takes a long time and i even particularly this one teacher that she and I had a huge falling out because I just said, you cannot talk to, about people because of their ethnicity because of this. You can't assume. Um, I just shut it out. I, I lost her friend. And now, what is it, seven years later, eight years later, she's finally having the awareness of like, <gasps> maybe there's racism, you know? And you go, oh, yeah, 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 that's what I was saying seven years ago. So it's, it's just a really uncomfortable thing. Um, and not only that, she just said the organization had racism. She still didn't recognize it that she had in herself and the conversation that she was having. So if there's, if we're having, 
if we're being honest, I, I think you kind of have to have uh, a high EQ or emotional intelligence to even start thinking about how your past is affecting the, the, the future conversations. And that's very hard. Yeah. Well, it's hard to, it's hard, it's hard for people to admit mistakes. And my, my impression of things I've been hearing for quite some time, of course, but is that especially among white people, there's a, there's a, a tendency to get defensive, like, well, you know, racism was taken care of. Remember, don't you remember the civil rights? Like we took care of it already. That was then, that wasn't me. Like those horrible racists back then were totally different from me. And those horrible racists who brought slavery to this country and perpetuated it, they're totally different from me. And not seeing that, number one, racism is a very uh, sneaky and all-encompassing social construct. And it's not just a, it's not a, it's not something you can encapsulate into just broad institutional terms like slavery or voting rights or something else. Like it's got, the tentacles are so fine and they reach so deeply that it can pop up directly, indirectly, uh, easy to see, hard to see, uh, everywhere in society. And you cannot, no, no change in the law uh, and no quick fix gets rid of it. That it, it comes down to a, like every single person on an individual daily level, person to person, that's where it exists. And that, you know, all of that together, that whole web together is what props it up. And that's hard because yeah, yeah. that takes a lot of looking yourself in the mirror. Uh, yeah, I, I would. I think it's it's incredibly hard, and and I think that I mean all fun aside or all jokes aside, uh, when you learn, for, first of all, even me as a teacher, I never taught. Uh, I rarely taught material that was that talked about inequity. In right? You might have uh, one one or two, like you might have an African American uh, unit right? You might have a multicultural unit. Um, but for the most part, we're still reading The Scarlet Letter. We're still reading, which I actually like that book a lot, but we're still reading certain books that like Lord of the Flies, right? Where that's a mandatory thing. Well, actually that book was based off of someone who was an alcoholic, right? Um, someone who actually took the idea of this Lord of the Flies and they just debunked that myth of that kids or all boys can be chaotic and crazy. People use this as like a, a fact, not opinion. And so they, I, there was a New York Times article that just came out that, that found the Lord of the Flies scenario that happened um, 70 years ago. And the, the boys actually turned out to be really nice and they were loving <laughs> <laughs> and they were, and they had like rules and systems. And when somebody was wild, they made you go and take a time out. And this was just, it's like, you guys, we really need to rethink and reframe it. Um, and even myself, like my mother is um, lighter complexion than I am. And so she in some communities could pass for something else. So even her and I are having these conversations and she's saying like, I never knew we had this much racism. I can't believe it. And it's like, what? so even things like that, we're all kind of having to unlearn it. Um, and so, yes, I want you to feel uncomfortable, but it's, it's a lot of work. So I, I agree with you, Brent. 
it's okay to be uncomfortable. <laughs> I think, I think it's fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's <laughs> fine. That's totally fine. And it's fine. The, the, the other thing is um, it, we get so, we get so binary about a lot of these kinds of issues. Like uh, for example, um, the idea of diversity is sometimes viewed as, well, if, if we actually had diversity, then um where somebody's losing out, right? Like you're taking some, mm. literally taking something from one person and giving it to another, another person that's binary. That's, you know, that's plus, you know, pluses and minuses check, you know, it's like, it's like a math equation where that's not the way the number one, that's not the way the world works. Uh, number two, the economy is, is so massive that if you think that a few positions in your organization are going to tip the balance for another person who's also part of this economy. Like you have a very grand view of your organization. And, and then it forgets that, well, if we actually include more people and we actually expand the system, maybe it's going to be better for the system as a whole. Like, you know, getting too binary and too focused down on like, I'm going to lose something or something's being taken away from one person on an individual level. Like you ignore what could be really good results for the entire group, including yourself, because you'll be included in the group, just because you are focused on it in that way and not viewing it uh, in the broader sense and in, in a larger, not collective in a kind of communist way, I guess, but like collective in, a, in an aggregate way. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. I, I mean, Rachel, I feel like you might be able to, to, to talk about this too, but um, I think, you know, we, we talk about cultural capital and we talk about um, how can you level up. And, and I think about myself and, and a lot of folks that are in the, the certain spaces who have earned the right to be here, a lot of women, and particularly a lot of women of color, have all of these degrees and accolades already. And what's happening is they're, they're seeing people get hired that have less, right? I, everyone in my, it sounds crazy, but everyone in my immediate family that is a black female has a professional degree. Um, and that is what my mom has an MBA. My aunt has like a, a JD, my, like everyone I know has hustled to get to this part. And we're still having the conversation of, I'm not making over $70,000. They're still not hiring me. They're still not, I still can't get it. I'm still having these arguments. It, I think that's the part that gets to be frustrating because um, I grew up in California and they dismantled the affirmative action. Um, the You can't, you know, you can't get someone in into colleges based off of, uh, where they came from or, or those numbers. And I, I do think that that dramatically affected the UC system. I think that really affected um, people have to hustle three to four times more just to prove that they're qualified. I had to write a book to prove that people should pay for me. You know what I mean? <laughs> And yeah. that, that's the, the crazy thing. Like I had to sit and say, all right, I'm going to do this. Take me seriously. You know, I'm going to create weird uh, um, information. And then and on top of that, I used, I had a shoestring budget. I had I spent, had $2,000 that I could only spend. I was in school to be, uh, to get my MBA. I was taking classes, CFP classes. That's a lot of things. And I'm in my thirties, right? Um, so I, I'm doing all these things. And so you, you get to a point where you, I think 
a lot of people get um, upset. And so now, I mean, I'm at the point where I don't really care. I'm just like, okay, I, I need to get paid because these are good ideas. But I think it takes a, a people a long time to, to even get to that. No, I, I completely agree with you. Yeah, I, I can't say it better than you. Yeah, you, I really agree. Mm-hmm. Right, you have to be the like, I was cl- I was class president of my school. You know what I'm saying? Like you, you gotta be this like check off those boxes. You know? Yeah. You can't just have a regular mediocre life. It's kind. It's a very weird thing. You have to be like overly qualified. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier, which is that, you know, it's, it's part of the culture and, you know, your, your upbringing and then just kind of who you are. Like I, it's like you're saying, I growing up, I was in student council in law school. I was student bar association president. You know, I did moot court. I did, I can't even think of however many act, extra extracurricular activities, but it's like, yeah, you, you constantly feel like you're, you're just striving for more. Gotta do more. Gotta do more. I haven't wrote a book yet, so you got me. <laughs> but it, I know, but yeah. you're probably gonna write a book. You know what I'm saying? Like that's <laughs> the thing. Like every that's. I think that's the 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 funny thing is 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 you have to do these things. I mean, I do enjoy it, but um, I, there actually are two really great TV shows that I'm I love right now. I'm watching uh, Insecure, you know, which is a really big controversial thing and um or actually it's it's kind of like a regular life and i'm watching this other show called rami um which is like an egyptian american uh story and it's just nice to see regular folks of color just try to figure stuff out and not be claire huxtable right so i'm like wow look at yeah i had that life too like i i struggle with dating i struggle with this you know and so i think we need to start just seeing regular stories too um so it's not like we mentioned earlier crazy rich asian not every asian is rich it's like two billion one billion people you can't say that you know it's only the largest continent on earth right Right. And they also have different ethnicities and providences and, and cultures. And you're just like, oh, my gosh, why are we still doing these cookie cutter things? Um, uh, and I, I think the other thing is like um, Moore's Law. We have that Moore's Law, that, that the exponential. Um, it's like we're still saying the same things. We're just saying it more times. So uh, I think we, we really do have to unlearn a lot of stuff. Yeah, I'm. I'm actually curious to hear, uh, Rachel, kind of your your take on our profession and kind of like what what barriers, what barriers do you see to your future and like what barriers do you think you're experiencing already? You're have you been practicing for two years? Are you about two years? I'll be two years in November. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah. Um. So I haven't been practicing too long, but I definitely feel. One of the biggest ones, honestly, is just the imposter syndrome. I think that's a huge one. And just for a, for me, just coming into, you know, the, the legal field is still male-dominated field. It's getting better, but still male-dominated. And so I feel like already just coming in as a young woman, a lot of, I, a lot of very traditional firms, I would say, still kind of, um, or... Actually, I would say I would say more women, more young women are a lot of, are really intimidated at coming into the legal field because they think, okay, I'm a young woman, I'm going to be judged soon because 
I'm going to be getting married someday and starting a family. And then they know I'm going to have children and what happens at that point. And so I think that's definitely one of the biggest barriers right now. And then just like I said, the imposter syndrome that, and, and I think that kind of spurs the, I have to do everything and I have to do it as an A plus plus and, you know, be the leader in this and do this just because we constantly feel like, you know, we, we just aren't good enough or, you know, that someone's going to judge us differently. So I, I got to get do five other things to show them that I'm still just as good. And it's, you know, it's, it's going to be a long work to, to change that. And I think like you said, Brent, you know, with, with the legal field, we have all these wonderful policies in place that, you know, really want to change all of this. But when you look at the end of the day and you look at in leadership roles, it doesn't really prove like it's actually happening. And I think there's a big disconnect, especially in the legal field between a lot of young women associates. And then you've got senior partners, people in, in the leadership positions. And, you know, it's all right, there's a huge gap there. What happened? That's where the policies need to be uh, implemented. That's where the change really needs to occur. Why isn't that happening yet? And so I think it's, you know, we're in a time right now, like usually I was saying, where we're having these uncomfortable discussions and it's a necessary uncomfortable because it's, it's finally bringing light that what we've been doing is simply not good enough. It's, it's, talk. It's not really actually the doing, you know? Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for indulging me there. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I obviously, I want, you know, my somewhat self-interest is I want Rachel to be like as successful as humanly possible, way more successful than I, than I am or ever could be. Uh, Cause if that happens, I'll also be really successful. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> so somewhat selfishly, I want that. Uh, I mean, I get asked, I get asked by clients and other advisors, kind of about our team, like, well, you know, it's me. And then, and then uh, my associate, Rachel works with me and I get asked a lot, like, well, oh, is she a lawyer? Like, yeah, that's what associate means. I mean, she's a lawyer. Like, yeah, she went, went to the University of Arizona undergrad, went there for law school, got hired out of there at a huge law firm. You know, they don't just hire idiots. <laughs> we hire, they hire really good people. So, you know, and I wouldn't have just hired an idiot. And she's a really good lawyer, really promising lawyer. So well, thank you. Yeah, I, um, I definitely, yeah, those, those conversations, I don't know whether to make them more uncomfortable, um, just to make a point, but yeah, I, I can't even tell you how many times just in practicing two years, not even two years, how many times I've been asked if I'm a secretary, if I'm a paralegal, if I'm your assistant. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, I assist Brent. I'm, I'm an attorney too. We work together. <laughs> And I, I am your attorney and I am sitting here with you and I'm giving you legal advice and it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I guess my, my hope for that is, is that when y'all are having those conversations and, you know, the conversation ends up being like, well, would you have said that if that was a man, you know, or like, would you have said that if that was your daughter or, you know, kind of making a joke about it? Cause those are those microaggressions mm -hmm. that, that play a huge role within systems, right? Like, Oh, you know, I look very young. Right. And it's like, yeah, these are great genes. I'm very fortunate that I look like, an extra on the Disney channel. That's great, right? Let's keep that coming. But, you know, people will take you less seriously because, you know, I'm not, my partner is six foot four and he gets taken seriously immediately when people see him because of his height. And I'm look like, I'm like five two, which is like, 
I'm kind of like barking, you know? So just things like that, um, it, your image and, and different things, all of that, like we just talked about Moore's Law, that, that plays an impact on how people even view their profession. And I mean, even, what is it, Michelle Obama was talking about that in her book, Becoming, of how she was a high-powered lawyer and stopped because it just got too much. It just became too much of a thing. So she started becoming, uh, she worked for, I believe, the hospital. So she's not really doing as much uh, legal stuff, but she stopped doing it because it just was got to her, right? If the first lady, former first lady, is saying that that's got to be, we've got to start having different conversations around it. Yeah, exactly. If it's, pro- if it's a problem for Michelle Obama, let's just all agree it's a problem for everybody. Mm-hmm. Like, seriously, you, you couldn't get much more credentialed than Michelle Obama. Right. So if she's saying it's her issue, let's start listening to everybody else. Right. Well, uh, we've taken a bunch of your time and I could Thank not you. be more appreciative of it. Thank you so yeah, yeah. much. Yeah, I had a good time. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll have to do it again. Good luck on the book releases Friday, yeah? That's the hope. A couple of days, yeah. yeah. So good luck with that. And Thank you. Uh, I hope it's a smashing success. Thank you so much. I appreciate y'all. Thanks, All Rachel right. and Brent. Thanks a lot. If you're enjoying what we're doing with the podcast, please subscribe and follow us on social at Wealth and Law and follow our blog, wealthandlaw.com. See you there. Mm-hmm.